Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our newest expositions through the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're currently beginning this book, and so we'll begin reading here in just a moment at chapter 1 and verse 1. Hello, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today. Let's begin reading, why don't we, at the beginning of this book. Verse 1, chapter 1 of the book of Daniel. It says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So we want to begin looking at this book by first of all offering to you a, a very simple outline, and that is a two-part outline. The first has to do with the stories contained in this book, and that is the first six chapters. Then in chapters 7 through 12, we have the visions. So those are the two main breakdowns, you might say, of the entire book of Daniel. And I know that most of us are uh, more motivated to get to the passages and the chapters that have to do with the images and the symbols and the, the visions of Daniel. But there is a certain pattern that we really do need to be committed to, and that is we need to examine the character of these people before we look into some of the nature of what was revealed to Daniel and what was given to Daniel about the end of the age or the end of all ages, you might say, and of what was going to be the future for the nation of Israel as well as the nation surrounding Israel and Judah. So we need to understand the people, the characters that are involved, as well as 
the, the culture of the Babylonian Empire. So we find here that Daniel is recording history for us, and Daniel himself is a historical figure. And that is uh, pretty clear from the fact that Ezekiel, which happens to be uh, a contemporary of Daniel, although he's not mentioned anywhere in Daniel's book, but Ezekiel was taken to a totally different city in the same exile uh, into the Babylonian empire. But Ezekiel spent all of his time in the separate city, but he evidently knew about Daniel because he named him by name uh, twice in chapter 14 and once in chapter 28 and verse 3. So Ezekiel considers Daniel to be his and historical figure, and so does Jesus, by the way. Jesus called Daniel the prophet, which gives us an idea that Daniel truly was a prophet. Now, although uh, there were uh, at times many people in the Jewish community who had relegated Daniel to the section called the writings, because uh, Daniel didn't carry out the role of a prophet in Judah or Israel in a formal sense. And in fact, he, uh, he would more formally be considered to be an ambassador or a statesman in a Gentile country. But uh, Jesus considered him a prophet. And in fact, uh, Jesus considered the accuracy of Daniel's prophecies so profound that he used a phrase from Daniel as a key ingredient to Jesus' own sermon about eschatology. And that's a fancy word for the end times, or the last days, or uh, the future things. And uh, so if Jesus uses Daniel, and at least the, the key ingredient to his own sermon, then we should at least lift Daniel uh, to that level of authority that somehow he has something to contribute to our understanding of God's plan for the nation of Israel, of God's plan for the Gentile nations around Israel, as well as what God has for us to understand even Jesus's own predictions about what is to come. So because of that reason, we look at Daniel as history pre-written. And that is, Daniel is so accurate that at times those people who already have a, a kind of a predisposition against the supernatural work of God in, in revealing things to human beings on a language level, that those people who don't believe that the Spirit of God can inspire a prophet to write things down, then, then they, they have uh, put a, uh, a separate author in place uh, somewhere in the Greek Empire, uh, 300s BC, because Daniel himself got so many prophecies so accurate, they already have judged uh, as as being out of place. In other words, they say he couldn't be that accurate unless he was an eyewitness of some of the things that took place during the Greek Empire for him to have gotten these things so precise. And yet, we do believe that uh, the Spirit of God and the work of God in Daniel could give Daniel an insight into the future consequences even 
down to some details. And uh, that's why we look at this from a very historical standpoint. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, in fact, said this, to reject Daniel is to reject the Christian religion. Well, that's a kind of an outlandish claim to make, but uh, uh, as we get into this book more, we will understand how Daniel's framework that the Spirit of God had given to him to write down and record through angelic messengers or through, through visions and through these images and symbols, we find that, uh, that they are key ingredients to our understanding of God's work in the world, of history itself, of history of Gentile nations and the Hebrew nation. So we find that this book opens with this exile, with with Nebuchadnezzar and his army taking these people from Judah and the articles from the temple into Babylon. This is, of course, quite a dramatic thing, and yet it has been predicted. It was predicted uh, many times and many years ahead of time that this would happen, and it's based on other prophecies even before then, and that is that God had established this nation. This nation was birthed out of an exile into Egypt, even though God had promised Abraham a land that he would possess and his descendants would possess. And yet even in that context, in Genesis, that God actually predicted that they would spend some time in exile in Egypt. And uh, that was from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 15, that they would spend uh, several several generations in bondage to into Egypt. And then uh, later on, we find that that is one of God's uh, methods that he would use to discipline his nation, was to take them out of the land. It's a very extreme discipline, but it was there in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that he would take them out of their uh, their homeland that God had given them and take them into Gentile territories. And that was a part of the law of Moses. Also, the northern kingdom had already been taken in 722 BC under the armies of Sennacherib into Assyria. And now Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, was being taken into Babylon. Now, this was because of the disciplinary action because Israel had allowed itself to get immersed into Gentile idolatry. They had forsaken the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. They had turned away from him. And in fact, they had placed idolatry right up alongside of the worship of Yahweh if they hadn't completely replaced him. And that's exactly what they'd done with these rituals and with the sacrifices and with the worship that uh, involved Gentile idolatry. Some of this worship involved priests and priestesses who were actually uh, religious prostitutes. It also, some of this uh, idolatry involved the sacrifice of human beings, not just human beings, but the sacrifice of children and infants at the throne or at the uh, 
the um, the worship of these false gods. And so God basically said, you, you seem to be enamored with these false religions and with these false gods of the Gentile nations surrounding you. Well, if you like them so much, I'll take you there. And that is almost what, uh, what you might say God did as a discipline action against the, the nation of Judah. And so then on top of that, <laughs> we have that not only had they abandoned the true worship of Yahweh, but also a part of the element of the worship of Yahweh included not just uh, the worship at the temple and the Sabbath day week of days, but there was also a Sabbath year and, in a, and a week of years. And that Sabbath year was to allow the land to lay fallow for one year out of seven. And for 500 years, the nation of Israel and Judah had failed to keep that Sabbath year for the land's sake. And even that was given a prediction or given a, a part of God's disciplinary action that if you don't do this, I'll take you out of the land so that the land would have its Sabbath. That was predicted in Leviticus chapter 26, also in Isaiah chapter 24 that they would spend 70 years in Babylon. It's almost as if God said, I'm going to take the Sabbath years given for the land all in bulk form. Well, we're, we're coming up on a break and we'll let you enjoy this musical interlude. the fact of why Daniel and his three friends have been extricated along with a lot of other uh, of their, uh, their people from Jerusalem and Judah, and they've been set down in the middle of the Babylonian Empire. You see, this was predicted, in fact, it was a, uh, a prophetess by the name of Huldah, who laid it out this way. She says in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 23, she says this, look at this. She said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the curses written in the book, which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah. That includes Leviticus and Deuteronomy, by the way. 
verse 25 of Second Chronicles chapter 34. It's, uh, she continues on, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place, and it shall not be quenched. And so that's the reason why Nebuchadnezzar uh, had the freedom to do this. You see, verse 2, in fact, says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the of the uh, house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. Look, it is the Lord who has given these things over to Nebuchadnezzar. If the Lord had not initiated this on his own, you see, then Jerusalem would have continued to be protected. But he did not. Daniel is not embarrassed to lay the responsibility for this extrication at the hand of the Lord. And uh, so we need to understand this as part of the Lord's work. Yes, it's brutal. Yes, the Babylonians overextended their their, uh, extreme brutality upon Israel, and they will have to pay for that. But in, in regards to the timing and the nature of this exile, this was God's work. And Daniel wants you to know that this was the work of God. And uh, uh, in fact, Jeremiah said in chapter 25, verse 11, the whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So, Jeremiah predicted precisely that there would be 70 years that God would take for the land to have its Sabbaths that they did not give it themselves for the last 500 years or so, or you might say exactly 490 years. And and that's exactly the number that God is now uh, taking for the land. And uh, Isaiah chapter 39 says, and some of your sons who shall issue from you, this is Isaiah 39, verse 7, and whom you shall beget shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Isaiah predicted this. Jeremiah predicted this. Uh, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 34, verse 25, it says, again, I will read this, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods. So this is a work of God. And Daniel wants us to know that. Uh, Micah chapter 4 verse 10 says, writhe and labor and give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth, for now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So Micah said that his own nation, his own people would be extricated out of their own land that God had given them and taken to Babylon. But Micah gave them hope that they would not cease to be a people and they would be brought back eventually. 
And uh, that is good to know. Now, Habakkuk even, uh, in his prophecies, he himself described the nature of the Babylonian empire and the Babylonian armies that followed Nebuchadnezzar in this exile work, in this work of conquering the city of Jerusalem and uh, taking the king as well as these people and the articles out of the temple and destroying the temple. Uh, Habakkuk has this. It says in uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, it says this, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through the wind, like the wind, that is, and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. So Habakkuk describes the fierceness and the, and the impetuousness of these people. And that is what characterizes this takeover of Babylon, of Judah, and, uh, and the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Mr. Baxter, J. Sidlow Baxter, had this to say about this event. The Jewish people went into the, that exile, helpless addicts to idolatry. Their idolatrous proclivities had cursed them for nearly 500 years and had at last become such a demoralizing infatuation as to cause their expulsion from Canaan. Well, that's exactly what happens. It's, it's almost as if God says, you want these idols, you want this culture, you want this language, you, you seem to be uh, enamored with this. I will take you out of the land I gave you and I will take you to a land and a language and a people and a culture and a whole bunch of religious practices that you seem to like, and I'll take you there. And that's what he did. In fact, in this uh, chapter, of course, chapter one, we find that, that here there are these selected individuals that are of either royal blood or noble blood. Uh, they are the cream of the crop, so to speak, the elite from uh, Judah. And uh, they are given the privilege of attending the University of Babylon. Well, they, they were more than just given the privilege. They, they had to do this upon the instruction of the chief of staff, uh, Ashpenaz, and upon the orders by the king. So they were recruited for this special role of serving in the king's palace and in the king's administration. And in order to do so, they had to attend the University of Babylon for three years, in fact. 
And uh, for that reason, because they were so young and because they're there, not of their own making. Uh, in fact, uh, these were godly uh young men. Uh, these were not idolaters themselves. Uh, the nation had had been disciplined for that reason, but that discipline also included these godly people uh, along with everybody else. And so these godly young men who evidently had been brought up to worship Yahweh and to honor Yahweh's words and Yahweh's law. And they, because they were intelligent and they were good looking, that's what the Bible says, that uh, they were counted as, as uh, worthy for the king's own service in his administration. But they needed the training. And so, so uh, that meant they had to attend classes. Those classes, very likely, included things like re-education, retraining, re-instruction, in the uh, the culture of the Chaldeans, and that included more likely than not their own mythologies, their own religions, their own uh, uh, techniques of religion, uh, their own astrology, which may have morphed into uh, understanding astronomy as well. Uh, it uh, it includes the the Babylonian history and their view of history, as well as uh, mathematics and medicine, so that. These young men were therefore being retrained and re-educated in a different worldview and a different language, and they were given different names as well. Uh, they, as a part of their training, they were given different food, and we're going to get it into that into uh, in the episodes to come about the different food, because that comes up in the last part of the chapter. And so they were given this unique diet. Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Each one of their names have uh, in each one of their names has a uh, has a syllable that comes from one of the names of God, either Elohim El, that's one of the names of God, El or Yahweh. That syllable Yah appears in their names. Daniel is Daniel, <laughs> which is. God is my judge. Hananiah is the beloved of the Lord, or Yahweh. Mishael is who is as God. Azariah is the Lord. Yahweh is my help. Well, what's interesting, as a part of the inculcation of these young men, it included changing their own identities, changing their names to reflect not the names of Yahweh and Elohim, but rather the names of their God, Aku and Nebnego. And that means Belteshazzar is Bel's prince. Shadrach is illuminated by Aku, which is one of their gods. Meshach is who is like Aku. And Abednego is the servant of Nego, which was, again, one of their gods. So these men were young men were given this new identity, this new language, this new education, this new culture, which they didn't ask for. But you see, we'll find out that these particular young men, they thrived in a hostile culture. And that's our theme for the entire book of Daniel, thriving in a hostile culture. You know, it seems as though in our own culture, in Western civilization, this is not the same culture that founded the nation 
that we call the United States of America, something has come in and taken over our culture and given us a new history, a new view of government, a new view of law, a new view of philosophy and anthropology, a new view of what should be to come, a new narrative about what our history should be and where our history should be taking us. But you see, it is important for us to stand upon the words of God, God's words of history and mathematics and, and theology and philosophy and understanding and wisdom and knowledge. It is God's words that will endure regardless of what goes on around us. Dear Father, thank you for this passage today. Thank you for your work among and with your people, and especially with these four young men that you carried them through and gave them a role and a purpose and a direction of their life that endures into our understanding today and gives us courage to face whatever we might face in our culture. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.